We're going to be in Luke 2. I'm going to teach on, now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to teach about, but don't get scared, all right? Because I'm not going to teach, um, well, well, let me just tell you. Um, I'm going to teach about the tension. So I, this is something I've been thinking about since October. And so on my way back from Michigan, when I went to Michigan in October, as I was going to driving to the airport to fly back to Columbia, I, uh, I just felt the Holy Spirit begin to whisper to me out of nowhere. I mean, I, this wasn't even on my radar. But I felt the Holy Spirit begin to whisper to me, um, am I a God of providence and sovereignty, or am I a God that allows you to keep your free will? And, um, and to be honest with you, in that moment this year, the Lord has really just been sifting me in a, in a great way. And so in that moment, to be honest with you, I wanted the answer to be providence and sovereignty. I mean, you know what I mean? I really did. And so I said, Lord, I hope it's the first because that's the only thing that makes sense of where I am right now. You know what I mean? Um, And I felt the Holy Spirit just begin to whisper to me how both are a reality that we get to live in. And so I'm going to teach this today, but but don't be scared. I'm not going to teach you which one's right or wrong. I'm going to teach you the joy of living in that tension between them. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. Um, Let me give you a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this, look for Christ and you will find him and with him you'll find everything else. We live in a tension that I've been pondering for some time now. I just told you this. Uh, Never feeling released to explore it until today. These are brand new waters. However, I feel they are very pertinent to what we see in the Christmas story and in our lives today. That tension is God's providence and sovereignty and humans or humanity's free will. Many have attempted to figure out which of these is true without typically asking what it might look like for both to be true. Could God, this is hypothetical, could God be sovereign and be providential at the same time as humanity is operating with a free will? The whole the, nothing's going to be deeper than what I just said. Okay, so don't don't be scared. Don't be scared. So let me just break down what these mean, in case you, you don't understand what any of this means. I totally get you. Providence is simply divine guidance. You know, that's, that's all it means. So it's it's God guiding things. Sovereignty is to say that God has the power to do whatever He pleases. Okay, so sovereignty and providence go together all the time because. If God is going to determine what happens, he's got to have the power to do so, right? So sovereignty and providence. Free will is the ability to act at one's own discretion. So there's the definition. So an example of both of these being present is the Christmas story itself. God gives Joseph the choice to do with Mary as he wants. He could leave her or he could marry her though the messenger encourages him to marry her. Yet, in what we're about to read in Luke 2, we see that all of the circumstances happening in the world had to happen to put Jesus in Bethlehem at the exact moment of his birth to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. So, before I go deeper into my notes, let me just read Luke 2, 1 through 20. Luke 2, 1 through 20. So familiar, I mean, probably some of the most familiar territory in the Bible, okay? 
So let me read this. I'm in the NRSV this morning, but it's same, very similar in any translation. Um, I'm going to start at the top. Here's what I want you to be aware of as I read this. I want you to be aware of what's happening around Mary and Joseph and how Mary and Joseph might have felt about what was happening around them. Okay? So keep that in mind as I read this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration that was taken while Quinarius was governor of Syria. All went down to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went uh, from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was a descendant of the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. Now, I know a lot of y'all haven't been pregnant in the room. Some of you have, right? Um, I've not been pregnant, Um, but I've been married to somebody who has been pregnant. And uh, let me tell you what is not fun when you're pregnant, especially about to bust pregnant, and it's traveling. But we have cars and planes. I about said trains, but, I mean, who takes trains anymore? But you know what I'm saying? We, we have that. Um, guess what Mary and Joseph did not have? Cars. You know what I'm saying? So you can imagine their um, frustration, okay? Verse 6. While they were there, this is in Bethlehem, um, the time came for her to deliver her child, of course. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth, laid him in a manger because there was no place in the guest room. Um, No, I'm not going to hit that today. Most of your Bibles say in. um, That's just not, there was no hotels in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is tiny. It's a tiny town. There was no hotels, okay? Um, uh, It would have been a guest room in the family house that they didn't stay in. That's neither here nor there, but I just find it funny. Most of our manger scenes uh, look like a barn. Verse 8. Now in that same region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, this is the first declaration, the first declaration from a messenger or messengers of God in hundreds and hundreds of years. The first public declaration, do not be afraid, for see I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And then suddenly... There were with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. 15, when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. And Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. I love that. 20. The shepherds returned glorifying God 
and praising God for all they heard and, and all they had heard, excuse me, and seen just as it had been told them. Okay. <clears throat> so let me back up. Here in chapter two of Luke, we see all the circumstances happening in the world that put Jesus in Bethlehem at the exact moment of his birth to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. This was not in the control of Mary and Joseph, okay? It was Caesar Augustus that decreed the world should be registered, thus everyone going to their hometown, which happened to be Bethlehem for Joseph and soon to be his wife Mary, which happened to be the town of David, which happened to be so full in the family house that they had to stay in the workshop, which happened to have a manger, which happened to be the very manger that feeble animals such as the lambs being kept for Passover nearby would have been placed in, which happened to be the exact moment Mary gave birth, which also happened to be near Passover. This is the providence of God at work. See, there's a tension here. It, it, it seems that if you have free will, you and I, you cannot also have a God who is provident. And likewise, if you have a God who is totally provident, then the, you have no room for free will, typically. And I'll start by saying this. It's a grand mystery. Many have attempted to uncover very little success in doing so. And what I want to do today is explain how this is possible, okay? The, the, I, I don't want to do this, excuse me, today. I don't want to explain how this is possible. I do have my thoughts on this, but I'm not going to share them today. But what I do want to do is explain why knowing both are at work is freeing, even liberating, for those of us that feel like God's plan coming to pass in our lives depends solely on what we do. There... There's a lot of liberation in knowing that God's plan coming to pass in your life not only has very little with what you do to do with what you do, it has to do with what he does in your life on your behalf, and then what you do is trust that what he is doing is the right stuff, okay? This is what Psalm 139, 16 says. In your book were written all the days that, that were formed for me when none of them as of yet existed. All the days of my life were written in your book before one of them came to be. Our free will exists within God's providence. This means that while you are given freedom to choose in the playground of God's will, the playground, the rules, and the boundaries have been set and put in place by God. For example, for example, you can choose what to do with the salvation given to you by Christ. You can choose what to do with it. But, just to be clear, the salvation of Christ was given to you before you had a choice to do something with it. He said it is finished before you ever took a breath. Right? So our choice in what we do with salvation can't change what Christ has done before we had the choice. But it can determine what we do with the choice that Christ has made before we had the choice. Okay? Just stick with me. That's why we call it a gift of grace, not by works so that any man can boast. Okay? 
This is what Romans 8, 29 says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of a large family. Another example of this really practically is how you and I came to be. You were born into a particular family with a particular economic status, with a particular dynamic, with a particular race, with particular traits, all of which were determined realities before you were born. However, when you are born, you are given the freedom to live within those predetermined realities. So you can't change your DNA. You can't change whether or not you can sing as much as people try. You're either born with a voice or you're not. You know what I mean? But you, so you can't change that. But you can choose what to do with a singing voice that you got from possibly your mother or father. So you can't change whether or not you can sing, but you can change what you do with your voice. Y'all good? I know this is a lot. Okay? So let me give you my first point today. I'm, I'm doing three points. I can't believe I'm doing this. Okay? Can't believe this. Because um, normally I try to avoid anything that sounds like religion, but I, I just had three points today. So anyway, here we go. Here we go. Number one, <clears throat> you are exactly where you need to be on time now. You're exactly where you need to be. How annoying is it when things do not go your way? Super, I mean, super annoying. When things you thought would look like blank actually look totally different than blank. Because you and I have a predetermined idea of our lives and our future, when things turn out different than what we have predetermined, we feel like something's wrong. You know what I mean? I mean, how, like, how many times do we see this today where you'll see, you know, a guy or a girl that's, you know, 30 years old or whatever, and like, man, I thought I'd be married by now. According to who? You know what I mean? According to who? Facebook? You know? According to who? the friends that you grew up with? They all married people that they probably shouldn't have married anyway, which is why they're struggling with divorce right now. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, no, like you are exactly where you need to be in your life, okay? The truth is our predetermined ideas need to be reoriented around God's plan that is unfolding right in front of our eyes. It's what we've been saying about theology really for the past two years, but it's equally important in our own lives today. The only reason that you are in the wrong place in life is because you have an idea of what the right place is, and this isn't your right idea of where you need to be. The only way that you would say, I'm in the wrong place in life, is if your idea of what the right place in life is is different than what God's idea of the right place in life is. That's the only way you say it. The only, let me, let me, all right, all right. Should I, I'm going to make a really big statement. I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if it's possible for you and I following Christ to be in the wrong place in life. I think it is very possible for us to be awful stewards of the right place. But I don't think it's possible for us to be in the wrong place. How's that work? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When this happens, when, it, when you feel like you're in the wrong place in life, and I'm going to tie it back to Luke, okay? Two things can happen. 
you feel bad, that you must have done something to get you off of the right path, amen, or you could redefine right to fit what is actually real right now. You know what I'm saying? So when we started this church, I, I could have had an idea. Uh, let me let me just. I could have had an idea that in five years we're gonna we're gonna be a church of um, five thousand people. Okay, so five years later we're a church of. If everybody was here at the same day, I, I don't even know seventy five. Okay, hundred whatever. If everybody was here, let's say this. If everybody who tithed to this church was here today, we'd be a church for about one hundred and forty. Okay, 150, give or take, depending on the month. So if that was the case, um, I would look around the room, or today, look around the room, and I could do one of two things. I could say, we're in the wrong place in the history of our church. You know what I'm saying? Now, why would I say that? Because I had an idea five years ago of what this should look like five years from now. Or I could say, maybe my ideas of what this is going to look like in five years were wrong. And we're actually exactly where God needs us to be. Therefore, I'm going to redefine what I see as the right place to orient itself around what we're actually in right now, which is this. Or I could sit around and kick and scream about why God is not being faithful because we're not where I thought we should be in five years. You see what I'm saying? And the difference is, is I lead or we lead with trust in the faithfulness of God and respond after that rather than responding to what we think and then letting our trust be determined by what we see dependent on what we think. You know what I mean? I don't trust God's faithful. Why? Because he didn't give me a spouse. Maybe you're not ready for a spouse. Did you ever think that you're, you don't have a spouse right now because God is faithful? You know what I'm saying? Well, I just I don't have the job that I want right now. I just I just don't believe in the faithfulness of God. Maybe you don't have the job that you want right now because God is being faithful. And in 10 or 15 years, you're gonna look back and say, Well, thank God that didn't happen when I thought it should happen. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, <clears throat> think of how annoyed Mary and Joseph had to have been when they got word, Mary about to blow, okay? When they got word. They had to pack up and leave their home and travel travel to Bethlehem. Let me put this in perspective, okay? The trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, do you know how far that trip would have been? At the best case scenario, 90 miles. Walking or riding an animal and bringing all of their belongings with them. So you know all the stuff when you go on a trip that you cram into your trunk and then you just drive away and you get there, you unload it? This is all the stuff they have to carry with them. 90 miles. That's like somebody coming to you and you're nine months pregnant and saying, I need you to be in Spartanburg by the end of the week. You have no car. You have no airplane ticket. You have no train ticket. You have nothing. And you got to figure out a way to get there. And you walk. Okay? 90 miles to go to a place where you're around a bunch of family that you may or may not want to even be around, right? Because for Mary, this was her, you know, father-in-law's family. So, right? And not only that, when you get there, you know you're probably going to have this baby and you're not going to be at home. 
And that is the work. When we had Veda, we had to go back to the hospital because of some complications and all this stuff with Jordan. And it was the worst feeling ever having a new baby and not being at home. You know what I'm saying? So, so this would have been at, at best a five-day journey on foot. At best. On top of all that had taken place, namely her being a teenager, unmarried, pregnant, <coughs> possibly that pregnancy would have resulted in death, pregnant with God, things could not have been on the surface any worse for them. Yet, having the luxury to look back through the gospel of Luke, we see that all that was happening was actually God at work redeeming the cosmos. So, so I wonder, I wonder, did Mary and Joseph see what was happening in that moment, not hindsight, in that moment? <coughs> Excuse me. Did Mary and Joseph see what was happening as God redeeming the entirety of his creation? Or did they see it as a problem, an annoyance, and as something possibly being wrong? What if the things we think are insignificant, annoying, and meaningless are actually the things that God is using to align us in such a place that it allows redemption to flow into the creation? Like, what if your job that you see is meaningless? What if that's the very thing that God is using to bring his redemption into the creation? In other words, what if the things that you and I see as wrong are actually God's plan to bring you to the place that you need to be to become who you are designed to become? Let me give you one more story. <clears throat> Jordan and I are from two different cities. So I was born and raised in Greenwood, lived in Kentucky for a season, and that's where I was living before I moved back to South Carolina in 2013. Uh, Jordan's from Conway, Myrtle Beach area. Um, there are it would take me all day to tell you all the stories that got us to Columbia. But we should not have ever met, ever. You know what I'm saying? Me and Jordan should have never met. And yet, there is a day in November, the first Sunday of November in 2013, where I happen to be new on staff at this church. She happens to be new as being a part of this church. We happen to meet, we get married, now Veda's in our lives, etc. And all of that, we could have seen as, I don't understand your plan. Why am I in Columbia? Which we did. Or, if we had seen it correctly, it would have been, God, what are you doing with me being in Columbia? I mean, okay. Point number two, point number two, because I could keep going. You are not responsible for God's plan. You are responsible for trusting God's plan. You're not responsible for God's plan. You're responsible for trusting God's plan. Take a drink of water. Devil's a liar. He will not get my voice. Just kidding. There are many times that you will not understand what God is doing or why. There are many times it will seem like you're walking in the opposite direction of where you should be. But you have to trust that God has a plan and is working it out in your life. 
In Matthew 2, 13 through 15, it says this, that Joseph was given a message in a dream from an angel that said to escape to Egypt and remain there until that same angel tells him otherwise with no end date in sight. This is not a familiar story we hit at a lot, especially around Christmas. Jesus is born, and then in Matthew 2, it tells us that there was a decree that went out to kill every baby that was born in Bethlehem to and under, okay? So an angel shows up to Joseph in a dream and says, I need you to go to Egypt and go to Egypt and remain until I come back to you and tell you it's safe to come back. There's no end date in sight. I just need you to go to Egypt. Remember the journey they had just taken to get to Bethlehem. Egypt was a much longer journey than going to Bethlehem. You know what I'm saying? This is also very reminiscent of Abraham. I need you to go to a land. I'm not going to tell you, but I just need you to go. Right? Why did they do this? Because King Herod had been tricked by the Magi and ordered every baby under two to be killed in Bethlehem. Had Joseph and Mary not trusted that going to Egypt, of all places, Egypt, okay? If they had not trusted that they should go to Egypt for an undisclosed amount of time, though it seemed like the opposite place that the Messiah of Israel should be. I mean, if Jesus is the Messiah of the people of Israel, where should he probably be? Israel. You know what I'm saying? And an angel shows up and says, you know, after all you've been through, the Messiah, he will save my people, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I need you to go to Egypt. Huh? Egypt, you know what I'm saying? Had they not trusted, Jesus may have, we don't know what, you know, God would have stepped in and done, but Jesus may have been killed by King Herod. You don't have to understand, you just have to trust. In fact, James 1, the testing of your faith is what makes you ultimately mature and complete, lacking nothing. So when you learn to live by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, you suddenly become a prophetic witness to what Yahweh is doing in the earth. This is a big statement. Prophets are not prophets because they know everything that is happening. Prophets are prophets because they carry a level of trust even when they don't know everything that is happening to be faithful anyway. Are y'all good? Okay, okay. You and I will lose so much anxiety about our lives and what is going on when we relax into the trust that you and I cannot affect God's purpose, but we can trust in it. The difference is God will have his way with you worried the entire way, or God will have his way with you, with you at rest. The difference is how you respond, not where you go. <clears throat> let me, let me, let me. Let me say it like this. Israel, in the beginning of the Bible, Exodus, they're given the law. They're given the command to be God's people. <clears throat> they're told, if you don't obey this, you'll die. Right? They didn't obey. Some of them died. Right? But you get all the way to the New Testament And suddenly you find God saying, I've run out of every other option. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to become them. And I'll be faithful on their behalf. And then they can be aligned in the place that they should have been aligned in Exodus. Point of the story, 
They had the option to trust in Exodus all the way through, but they said no, and God still got them to where they should have been all along, which is, you are my people. It was just a lot harder of a journey for them to not trust and be faithful than it would have been if they had simply trusted and been faithful. But God, at the end of the day, got them to that place anyway. Here's my point. We we spend so much time kicking and screaming, and I'm the first of these, kicking and and worried and staying up late at night and anxiety and depression and all of this stuff because life doesn't look like what we think. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Lord, we do this all the time. And it's like very few times do we sit back and say, maybe what if I'm exactly where God wants me to be? Like, what if this is exactly where I'm supposed to be right now? You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what if what I'm stressed about is actually God's design? Like, what if I don't make, you know, I don't, the amount of money that I think I need to make right now because God is trying to teach me how to be a good steward? You know, I, I don't know what it is, but, I'm, but what I really feel like the Lord wanted me to say today to a lot of us in the room is that, what, especially our generation, and especially after COVID, I, during COVID, people lost their ever-loving mind. You know what I'm saying? No one. We went to a homeschool co-op meeting this week. They, they have to essentially force people. They have to take, get people to write them checks at the beginning of the semester, and if they don't show up to do what they're supposed to do, they start taking money out of people's bank account. They have to do that to get people to just be good to their word. This is our society after COVID. No one's faithful in anything. I mean, you know what I'm saying? We have to force people to do stuff. This is where we are. But during all of this, there's this thing that has always been there, but has been amplified on the other side of this COVID season, that there is so much thinking the grass is greener on the other side. And we don't even care what the other side is. We just want to be on the other side. And I said this this two years ago, I think it was. The grass being green has nothing to do with where you are. It has everything to do with how you take care of the grass. So the grass could be green exactly where you're planted if you'll just water it. You know what I'm saying? Because because this is what happens. People will get jobs, and they'll move, and they'll, you know, get in relationships, and they'll do all the stuff that they're nine times out of 10, maybe not supposed to be doing, but it just seems right because it's new and I've never done this before and blah, blah, blah. And then they'll get there and then suddenly they'll realize this isn't what I thought it would be. You know what I'm saying? This just does not feel like what I thought. I thought I'd be a lot happier here. And people realize it was never about the plot of land that you were on. It was always about whether or not you water the grass and take care of it. So when you get over to this next plot of ground and you don't water that grass and you don't put fertilizer on that soil, guess what happens? The grass dies and you start looking for another plot of green grass without ever realizing maybe if I could just get rooted enough, this grass would be green grass. Maybe this is actually where the Lord wants me to be. Maybe where I am in life is not because I've made bad decisions or because I haven't been, um, what's the word? ambitious enough. Maybe where I am in life is is not because I haven't chased dreams enough. Maybe I'm here just because this is where God wants me to be. 
Like maybe I'm the pastor of a small church in Columbia, South Carolina, after being a mega, mega, mega superstar in God's church in another season, because this is where God wants me to be. Maybe I've not been unfaithful. Maybe I've actually been faithful. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you've not been, maybe you've actually been very faithful and you're in the place where God wants you to be. And, but, but we've got to redefine what we see based on God's view of things, not ours. And you know, listen, I told you it's going to be real practical. You know what the, the absolute killer for us seeing God's way is social media. Social media. I mean, it is, it is the killer. People will make decisions in their life. They don't do this consciously. They'll do it subconsciously. People will make decisions in their life based on social media. <clears throat> well, so-and-so did this. You know what I mean? Well, so, so man, look at, look at them. Everybody's cheering them on. They just, they just, you know, moved to Hawaii to be a part of a missions organization. Maybe, maybe I should do that. Look at all the likes they're getting. You know what I'm saying? Or whatever, you know? <clears throat> man, I hate the heat here. Maybe I should move to Chicago where it's colder. That's what everybody else is doing. You know, I mean, it's, it's insanity. But we see that this is all social media. We see where other people are, and we think, hey, they're where they need to be. Okay, how many of y'all post your real pictures on social media? <clears throat> None of y'all do. You know what I'm saying? They, those things have been edited so much, you might as well went and got 12 rounds of plastic surgery. Those, you know what I'm saying? Y'all ain't posting y'all's real pictures on social media. You're posting the edited pictures on social media. And then we think everybody else is posting their real pictures on social media. They ain't posting the pictures about them staying up late at night, anxiety-ridden, and not sleeping, and on depression pills, and all this other stuff. They're not posting that. They're posting God is good. You know what I'm saying? And, and we've, we've just, we've got to settle down. And I'm preaching this from it. Like, this is something I'm learning right now. We've got to settle down and realize that God is a God who is in control which means if he is in control, we are exactly where we're supposed to be. And, and that be good enough. Like maybe we could enjoy life knowing that when God wants me to move, when God wants me to stop, when God wants me to breathe, when God wants me to work hard, when God wants me to chase after and take a step of faith, and when he doesn't, all of that, the Holy Spirit will lead me into. Therefore, I can just simply enjoy life. Take upon me my yoke, which is easy, and my burden, which is light. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy late, and I will give you rest. Point number three. Do you remember where you started? Do you remember where you started? Your memory is the faith that you and I need to trust. Our memory is is the faith that we need to trust in God's plan. What did the angel say to Mary in the first encounter that they had in Luke 137? Do not be afraid, but this is what he says. For nothing will be impossible with God. Which is a real, if you read it, it's a real, it seems random. It's a really odd statement in that whole section. <clears throat> he says, you're gonna give birth, it's going to be the Messiah, you know, which is all, you know, out of the ordinary in and of itself. Um, 
Not only that, Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age. The one that it was said she'll never have a baby is actually going to have a baby. For nothing will be impossible with God. It's just, a, it's just a really, really odd placement of that. Before Mary is ever, listen to this, before Mary is ever asked to be obedient, she is reminded of the fact that God does what he wants and is never hindered by possibility. You would, listen, you and I live in a world of possibilities. Anything is possible. But the difference in living in a world of possibilities and nothing being impossible is possibility does not eliminate impossibility. So if we live in a world of everything is possible for us, that does not eliminate the fact that it is possible that what we choose to chase after in the plethora of options of possibility might be impossible for us. So, okay, it's possible for me to be an NFL football player. So I could chase after that the rest of my life. But it's also, though that is possible, impossible for me because I'm not good enough to be an NFL football player. You see what I'm saying? But, but, if nothing is impossible then all possibilities are available without any hindrance. So to say all things are possible is one thing. To say nothing is impossible is a totally different thing. One thing says all of this could happen. The other says whatever God chooses to happen will not be hindered by anything. So it's not just possible for you to have a baby and him be the Messiah. You will have a baby. He will be the Messiah because nothing is impossible for God. Nothing will hinder what I choose to do within you, a teenage girl in Nazareth that's asked to do what no one else in Scripture is asked to do. She, of every hero of the faith that we have, None of them are asked to do what Mary, a teenage girl, is asked to do. And not just a teenage girl, a teenage girl living in a time where it has been generations since somebody heard from God. And suddenly, a teenager hears from an angel, not just hears from an angel, hears, you're going to have a baby, even though you have never known your husband. Not only are you going to have a baby, it's going to be God. So, I mean, just picture this. In our day, you see, speaking of social media, you see on the news, let's say on the news, that there's a 16-year-old girl that says she's pregnant and it's God. Right? First off, that probably wouldn't make the news. But if it did, it would be like the joke of the news. You know what I'm saying? Like, this person's crazy. Right? Now, put that also in a time where if this is right and she is pregnant, but she's not married, the law says kill her. You know what I'm saying? She's asked to do what no one else is asked to do, and her response was let it be. Can I just read this? Let me just read this. <laughs> Mary said, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Angel said to her, verse, Luke 1, 
35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and will be holy. He'll be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived. And this is the sixth month of her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary said this. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. That's the message. She could have said, this is crazy. You know what I mean? Is there not somebody else? Is there not another way we can do this? There's no way Joseph's going to marry me. Joseph just started a business. He's a carpenter. He's going to lose... Who's, who's going to go get buy stuff from somebody who married a girl that had a baby out of wedlock? You know what I mean? We've got our career. We've got our jobs. We've got our finances. We've got our lives. And I, don't, I don't want this. I'll, be the, I'll literally be the laughing stock. And she says, here I am, the servant of God. Let it be to me according to your word. I, I read that this week as I was reading through the net, uh, Luke 1 and 2. And um, I actually had a message planned on that, but <laughs> I felt the Lord move me into Luke 2. But I just, what would the church look like? Because God will have his way with the church. You know what I mean? Like, either God will tear the whole thing down and rebuild it, which is kind of what we're seeing right now, or we'll respond in faithfulness, and he won't have to do that. But either way, he will have his way with the church. You know what I mean? America will be saved one way or the other. Either it'll be saved because we choose to play a role in it, or it'll be saved in spite of us. But it will be saved. And so, what if our response to what the Lord speaks as outlandish and crazy and insane that it is, even though it costs us laying down our lives, even though it makes us the laughing stock, whatever the case may be, what if our response to the word of the Lord is simply, here I am, the servant of God, let it be as you have said. And this is, this is pointing back really to a lot of the prophets, but Isaiah says this almost a very similar phrase. When he sees the glory of the Lord and, you know, you have the whole, the angel takes the tongue and the coal and touches his lips and all this other stuff. And the Lord has this conversation with the Trinity that says, who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. This is what, this is what Mary says, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. It's pointing back to Isaiah. Here's my point. If we stop thinking of God in terms of what he might possibly do and instead think of God in terms of there being nothing impossible for him, in other words, what God wants to happen will happen and nothing will ever stand in the way of it or hinder it in any way. If we'll start thinking that, 
that God has a plan for you and me and our families and our church and the creation and all of it will come to pass, then nothing can stand in the way of us playing a role that we are actually made to play in that coming to pass. If we can remember why we started, particularly what declaration was made over us when we started, we will believe that in the face of what we think we see in front of us, we know what he said and our memory gives us eyes to see what is in front of us correctly. The God, God's promise for me when we started this church, this was God's promise. I told him, I will not start this church if it's just a blip. That's what I said. I said, I will be completely, I, I will not do it if you've called us to go just stir some people up and then go on to the next thing. Like, I'm not interested in climbing the church ladder. I'm not interested in being here for a season and then a bigger church for a season, then a bigger church for a season, and suddenly I'm at a 10,000-person church. I'm not interested in that. You know what I'm saying? At all. And so I was like, Lord, that's not what I want. I just want a fire that will never go out. And if you promise me to give us a fire that never goes out, I'll do it if we're the only ones there. That's all I want. I don't want fame. I don't want fortune. I don't care about having a bunch of money. I don't care about my face being plastered all over social media and all that. People tweet me. I don't care about any of that stuff. All I care about is having a fire that never goes out. And we started. Let me say something. Five years later, I have a fire on the inside of me that not only has not gone out, it has grown and blazed within me in such a way that I cannot be quiet about it. And I hope that's the case with some of you. Let me say it like this. I know that's the case with some of you. I question whether all of us see it sometimes. Like, God has us in the palm of his hand, and he is glaring at us with eyes that blaze like fire. Unquestionable. Sometimes I wonder if we're allowing ourselves to stare back. How uncomfortable is that? There's some people, I don't like making eye contact with a lot of family members because they know every single thing about me and they know if what I'm saying, my my dad said, they know if some of the stuff I'm saying is right or wrong by looking at my eyes. Therefore, sometimes it's hard to make eye contact with family members that know you that deep because there's something in your eyes that they just know. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to if you're just walking down the street and you look at a stranger, you can do that because they don't know you. There's something about the intimacy that the Lord has with us that sometimes makes it real difficult for us to gaze into his eyes because things start to burn on the inside. Decisions that we have made that were not the decisions we needed to make, suddenly you start to glare into his eyes and those things start to hurt. It's called conviction. You know what I mean? Or things that you know you should have taken steps to do and you haven't done it, you start to stare into his eyes and he says, hey, you, what about that thing I asked you to do last year? And so because of that, it's a lot easier for us to stay at a distance and look down. Doesn't change the fact that he's staring But if we could ever allow ourselves to be given fully 
to glaring into his eyes. And whatever flows from that, our response be, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let everything be as you have said. No matter what that cost, that cost them everything. And yet, listen, and yet in costing them everything, they inherited the lineage of not just another great king, of God. You can't speak of God becoming flesh without speaking of Mary and Joseph. So they laid down what seemed to be extremely important in that season, and what they inherited from God was a role they could have never dreamed of having in the season that they were given the choice to lay down or not. You know what I'm saying? And when the Lord comes and he asks us to place things in his hands that we do not want to place in his hands, what we miss 100% of the time is that if we would just give him what we think is extremely important for us, he would allow us to inherit things that would blow our little dream-filled minds today if we would just let it go. Like, what if you and I are not here just to do church? I said this a couple Tuesday nights ago. What if you and I are not here just to have another church in Columbia, South Carolina? Columbia doesn't need another church. It needs less churches. It doesn't need more churches. You know what I'm saying? But what if we're not here just to do another, you know, Sunday church to, have, to let people go to another, you know, activity on Sundays and Tuesdays? Like, what if we're here because God desires to birth a cosmic redemption in the earth, and all he's looking for is an insignificant group of people to say, here I am, the servant of the Lord, do with us as you have said. All he needed was one teenage girl to say, here am I, do whatever you want. For Jesus to be birthed and redemption come to the world. That's all he needed. He did not need a priest. He didn't need somebody that was a big grand prophet. He didn't need a king. He needed a teenage girl that no one had on their radar for doing anything significant to just say yes. And her saying yes to lay down her life up until that point allowed her to inherit God's life. Literally. She gave birth to God. I wonder, uh, Damon Thompson quoted G.K. Chesterton Chesterton in one of his uh, recent sermons, and I love this quote, but I've never used it because, but when he used it, I felt relieved to use it. So, um, this is is G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, um, amazing guy. If you've never read him, definitely read him. His book, Orthodoxy, is really good. But he said this. Um, y'all ready? This, this is going to make you a little nervous. <clears throat> this is what he said. Not me. This is what he said. <coughs> he said, I set out to found a little heresy. And when I had put the finishing touches on it, I discovered that it was actually orthodoxy. <laughs> huh? All right, one more time, one more time, one more time. He said, I set out <clears throat> to found a little heresy. Of course, he's, he's, he's a great writer, so he's doing a lot of play on words here. But I set out to found a little heresy, 
And when I had put the finishing touches on it, I discovered it was actually orthodoxy. I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. Here, here's why I love that. It, it, is, it is going to take, if you went to, I'm almost done, Isaiah, can you hop up here? If you went to Nicodemus, who is the teacher of Israel, Grand Nicodemus, And you said, hey, here's how God's going to save the world. There's going to be a teenager. She's not married. She's going to get pregnant. She's going to have a baby. That baby's going to be God. That baby's going to grow up. That baby's going to be killed by the Romans. And when he's killed by the Romans, he's going to save the world. They would have said, of course, well, they, they would have said, kill them, because the Pharisees love doing that. And then <clears throat> they would have said, that's heretical. God killed by the Romans? That is heresy. And I, and I just I just wonder we haven't seen this in a very 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 long time. I think the last time we probably saw this closest was Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> when he set out and said some in that day and age. Now today is, you know, it's not as outlandish. But he says some things in that day and age that that went against a lot of stuff people thought. A lot of a lot of the South believed that slavery was a good thing that was based on the Bible. So for a lot of churches to say slavery is not a thing, that would essentially for them be heresy. You know what I'm saying? And so you have Martin Luther King Jr., who's, you know, I have I have a dream that one day that all people will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And, he, and, he, and he's given this. It's, that's the last time we've seen a major, he didn't call himself this, but a major prophetic voice in America. We've seen a lot of, of other prophetic voices. But to me, a true prophetic voice is willing to go against the grain and is not tethered to a certain political party in order to give a prophetic word. Okay. So we are in a day where like the word of the Lord, the pure, authentic, true word of the Lord is very rare. That's not a shot that um, that it's just real. There's no agenda. It's not, uh, we're, we, it's very rare for us to see a word of the Lord that has no agenda behind it that has no other purpose behind it except to be faithful to the Lord. Very rare. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's very rare. So we haven't seen in a very long time what it looks like for a company of people, no matter how insignificant, and maybe, listen, maybe the Lord allows it to be insignificant first before the yes comes out. But we have not seen that in a really long time. And I'm just on Christmas. I'm daring you to believe that maybe the Lord is bringing redemption to the creation, particularly to the West. And he's doing it by way of a group of people that simply say yes and trust that where we are right now is where we need to be. And that's good enough. We're on time, we're at the right place, 
If the grass around us is dead, that doesn't mean we need to necessarily jump to another plot of grass. It might mean we need to get the watering hose out. It might need mean that we need to sit back and figure out what is killing our grass and uproot it and get it out. But, but if we could trust in a God that has everything under control and our responsibility in that narrative is to simply trust, y'all, we're, we're going to see amazing things happen in the globe. Let me, let me, let me end with this. I know this is kind of a different message than I normally have, and I know my voice sounds different, so it's hard to connect it. So totally sorry about that. <clears throat> We're at a crossroads right now where the way that we have been doing church has been great. <clears throat> it's been exactly what the Lord has wanted, where we've needed to be, et cetera. But we're at a place now, and I've, I mentioned this to Isaiah, I think I've mentioned this to Matt, where you and I are going to have to choose. Like, we've had a foretaste, but we have not had a full drink of what God is doing in the earth. Because I believe the Lord has been bringing us to a place where when he asks us to be something that is totally orthodox, that is totally in line with his plans for us, but totally against our plans for us, that we've had enough of a taste and enough of a sight to see that he's good. And in seeing that he's good, we say yes to a, Robert Frost, to a road less traveled by that makes all the difference. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but I do know what it looks like for all of us is taking another step up in obedience and laying down our lives. Like I said, I don't preach a lot. I mean, I need to preach more of it. But like, I, I, I don't ever want to make this about me, but y'all need to know that the, the reason our church exists today is because we literally have laid down our lives. Like, this is not a game. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not here because I just, this is fun church. We're playing patty cake and I'm preaching some messages. That, that's not why we're here. I would not have done the things that I've done if that's what we were doing. It's not worth it. It is not worth it. No, I'm here because I genuinely believe that when the Lord said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men see visions, your old men dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in that day and they shall prophesy. And all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe that. I believe that. You know what I'm saying? And if I didn't believe it, this is not worth it. It is, it is not worth the sifting and the emails and the things and the people coming and going and joining and leaving. It's not worth it unless there is a vision of a day when Columbia experiences what it means for his spirit to be poured out on all flesh. 
from the lowest to the highest, from the poorest to the richest, from the most educated to the least educated, from the most unchurched to the most churched, his spirit poured out on all flesh and all prophesy. What does it mean that all prophesy? It does not mean that every person walks up to the stage and says, thus saith the Lord. Like Jesus talk, like God talks in King James, you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> Believeth in me, or whatever. The day cometh. Like, nope. Um, you know what I'm saying? That's not here's prophecy is simply speaking. What I just did in preaching is prophetic. It's it's simply having eyes and minds and mouths that are of the Lord. Every one of you are prophetic. Most of the time you don't even know it. Like when somebody, one of your friends comes to you and says, I just don't know what, what I need to do in this situation. And you give them advice. You're being prophetic in that moment. What it means for us to be is the spirit, the wind, the breath of the Lord, so covering all flesh that every single human being in this city and beyond has eyes and ears and minds and mouths and hearts of the Lord. And then there will be no divisions. There won't be a thousand churches in Columbia. There might be, I see a day when there's maybe four or five churches in Columbia. And it's not because people have fled. It's because there is such a unity in our city that we start to ask, why are we in separate houses? See, that sounds crazy, right? Everything seems crazy until it happens. It was crazy for a group of people to get on a boat and travel across the sea, and maybe we can find some land. And here we are, America. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? And so I just, I want to challenge you today. As you, as we go through this, this, we're in this Advent season right now. Advent just means coming. It's a, it's a, it's a season to prepare your heart for Christmas, for coming. And not just for the baby coming, but for Christ coming. And as we prepare, it, it is, listen, it's illegal for us to celebrate Christmas and not ask ourselves, how can we live incarnate too? Last, last point, last point. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Our responsibility. Here we go. I set out to found a little heresy. You ready? If God took on flesh and joined himself with us, our responsibility is to take on God and join ourselves with him. That is incarnation. You and I are called to live incarnationally. And we're not God becoming flesh. We're flesh, but you ready? Becoming God. You know, huh? You know what I'm saying? Well, brother, are you saying we're God? I'm saying we're joined to God. And if we're the body of Christ's head, what does that say about the body? Well, I don't know if you can say that. I don't know if you can't not say that. Huh? You and I are not God, but you and I are absolutely called to be joined with God. 
You and I are not God, but you and I are absolutely called to be the image and likeness of God into the earth so that when people look at you, it should be said of you and I, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said that while he was human. He was fully God and he was fully man, but what does it mean? Listen, if, if the Holy Spirit is just as much God as Father and Son and you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit, what does that say about us? that we are full of God and we're full of humanity. So when Jesus, fully God, fully man, says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, why would we settle for anything less than an image that when the world looks at us, it is said of us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But the way that that happens is first we have to go under the baptismal waters of laying our lives down. It's not, listen, it's not enough for you and I to just get wet and come back up and keep living our normal lives. If you've been baptized, you made a decision to lay down your life to live as Christ. And Christ would not be making some of the decisions that we're making. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Christ would not be. So we've got to lay down. Maybe, I don't know how you got to do this. Maybe you need to go under the waters again. Just, just to remind yourself why you're here. But we've got, you lay down your life to find it. But if you find your life, you lose it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'll give you everything else. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we seek out everything else in our lives and wonder why we don't see the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's because you are not, you're not made to provide for yourself. You're made to seek after the provider. You are not Jira. He is. You are the one joined to Jira, who is the provider. But you and I are not Jira. So we can relax. We can Sabbath. We can rest. That doesn't mean that we're lazy. It means everything we do is in a response and in a yes to what the Holy Spirit has called us into. Therefore, what we do, no matter how hard of work it is, if we're doing it through a yes, we're actually doing it in rest. Because none of it is to provide for ourselves. All of it is obedience to the one who has provided for us. Are y'all good? So if he is the provider, you can walk and make decisions based on the fact that he is the provider. Hey, listen, in him, there is no risk of failure. That's what the, the Passion translations in, Translation in Psalm says. In him, there is no risk of failure. So what would you do or what would your life look like if the idea of failure was out of your mind? Like if you knew I cannot fail, how would your life look? If you knew that no matter what I think this is going to look like, God is going to provide. What decisions would you make? Huh? You know what I'm saying? 
Like, what decisions would you make if you stopped being your own provider? Y'all bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Man, I could speak all day, but I wouldn't have the voice to do it. But this has been burnt, just burning on the inside of me that like we, if, if we're not careful, we'll take the message of reconciliation and we'll leave behind the message of laying down our lives. And the message of reconciliation is nothing but a reiteration of laying down your lives. It's what we talk about almost on a weekly basis when Paul says in Romans 6, right after the great Romans 5 chapter, he says, should we just keep sinning? So the grace may abound? Certainly not. Why? Because that person's dead. He's saying, because of the reconciliation that came through Christ Jesus, the people that you were before that reconciliation are dead and gone. So why would you live dead? And I I pray right now, Lord, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hands. I'm not going to ask anybody to do any of that stuff today. What I am going to ask you to do is I want right now, Holy Spirit, I want you to reveal to every person in this room and watching this and listening to this later, reveal to us what are the things that we need to lay down in order to take up what you have providentially and sovereignty sovereignly have placed in our lives for such a time as this? Like what what are the things that we need to lay down in order to take up a yes that says, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Do with me as you have said. God, I pray that we as a church will live with a trust that said, we, we're here. And listen, God, I repent for questioning our progress. <clears throat> I repent for ever questioning whether or not we're far enough, whether or not we've progressed enough, whether or not I'm the right person for this because of what I think this should look like. We're, we're exactly where we need to be. I just, I, I feel like there are some people, I don't do this, I, I feel like there are some people in the room, multiple people, that this has been a huge thing for you lately, that you've questioned where you are in life, that you've questioned your job, that you've questioned what you have been doing with your life, and it looks like you aren't where you should be. And that has caused anxiety to rise up in you. It's caused worry. And it has caused a temptation to make some bad decisions. And I just say to you as a spiritual father, you are where you should be. And if he wants you somewhere else, he'll pick you up and take you somewhere else. But as for you right now, your responsibility is just a yes. And if you keep giving him a yes, not only will he lead you where you should go, but he'll start to give you a rest 
on the inside of you that knows and believes that there is nowhere else to go but here in the presence at the feet, staring at the face of the one that you were made for. David did a lot of stuff, but then when he's asked, I don't know if he was asked or not, but he seems to be responding to a question. David, what do you want to do with your life? One thing I ask, and this shall I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of his face and inquire in his temple. I wonder if David accomplished what he accomplished because all he really cared about in life was staring into the eyes of the one that he was called beloved after. If you will live your life in devotion and make the secret place the one thing, I promise you, you'll be settled. So God, we love you and honor you in this place. I pray that this Advent season that we will prepare for your coming. Be that at Christmas or be that at the coming of the Lamb. I pray that we would prepare for your coming by laying down the things that you are coming after. And then that we would be agents of the same thing to everybody else around us. It's in your name that we all pray. Amen. Amen.